So when I was little, I remember watching shows like Goosebumps and Twin Peaks, you know, creepy shows about seemingly normal towns. My personal favorite was Are You Afraid of the Dark? Oh, that was such a good show. I know. That campfire. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly you watched it. Stop it. <laughs> so to be special, we tell our own creepy stories. And I remember hearing that our town was actually the site of a lot of murders that led to the introduction of tamper-safe seals. Yeah, when you told me that, I thought it was an urban legend until I read more about it. I totally wouldn't believe me either. So I checked it out on Wikipedia. Where else? And I found an old news article that tells the story of the murder of seven people in Chicago from Tylenol laced with cyanide. And they never did actually find the culprit. But suspects range from an extortionist in New York City to apparently even the Unabomber. So of course that crazy story made national headlines. And in response, Congress passed a federal law requiring all over-the-counter medications to have tamper-proof seals. But this wasn't just some random over-the-counter medication. It was Tylenol, the number one selling medication in the U.S. at the time. And even decades later, it's still our go-to medication for a fever when you're in the hospital. Or when you're stuck home with the flu. So today we're going to be talking about, first, what data there is to support the use of acetaminophen as a fever reducer. And how does it compare to other fever reducers, like NSAIDs? And for something we so frequently put into our bodies, how does it even really work? Spoiler alert, we're not actually really sure, but <laughs> exploring this will take us down a winding road of complicated pathophysiology that has plenty of dead ends, but hopefully ends with a satisfying discussion about why we think about it and use it the way that we do. So let's jump into the world of acetaminophen, a drug we all use but hardly know. I'm Janine Knudsen. And I'm Steve Liu. Welcome to Mind the Gap. Today we would like to thank Dr. Michael Pillinger for peer-reviewing this episode. He's a professor of rheumatology at NYU and chief of rheumatology at the New York Harbor VA. So let's start by reviewing what evidence we have to guide us or justify our ordering Tylenol at the first sight of fever. So sometimes basic numbers are the easiest. How much does acetaminophen really lower fevers? On average, numbers tend to range between three-tenths of a degree centigrade to no change at all in terms of fever reduction. And so for the rest of us, that's about half a degree of Fahrenheit. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Yeah. But that can be a bit deceptive because what they looked at in these studies was average temperatures. And to a degree. That's a terrible pun. I liked it. <laughs> but to a degree it makes sense that averages don't change drastically. After all, even if acetaminophen suppresses fevers, it's not curing an infection. So you're probably still going to get fevers. This idea is similar to using beta blockers to improve sinus tachycardia. Sure, it'll probably slow down a heart rate, but we're not just going to stick our heads in the sand and pretend that beta blockers are a first-line treatment for sinus tach. It might make your fever go down, but if it comes back, you may not see a huge benefit when we look at these average times. So why are we so confident that it works? Yeah, it's a great question. So ideally, you'd probably want a trial that looks at its effects in the short term. And we found exactly that. There's a nice randomized control trial from last year called Randomized Controlled Multicenter Clinical Trial of the Antipyretic Effect of Intravenous Paracetamol in Patients Admitted to the Hospital with Infection. And it looked specifically at this. I just want to quickly highlight that, as Janine mentioned in the title, this is using intravenous acetaminophen. My least favorite medicine of all time. Cost effectiveness? Terrible. But also, it was a fairly small trial, about 80 people, but otherwise, it was actually probably reasonably applicable. They looked at people over the age of 18 with new fevers over 38.5 degrees centigrade. That's 101.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. And with either skin, urinary, or upper respiratory tract infections. And folks either got acetaminophen or placebo in a randomized and blinded fashion. And so what they found was that at six hours, temperatures decreased by about half a degree centigrade. That's about one degree Fahrenheit. 
degrees. That's my line. <laughs> and as a quick check, we realized that one degree is more than the previous papers we mentioned, but it only looked at a six-hour window rather than the 24 hours in these other studies. So they found that the medium time to defervescence dropped from about six hours to about three hours with acetaminophen. Another way to see this is that 80% of the patients getting acetaminophen defervesced by six hours, compared to only 40% in the placebo group. So, as you might expect, this led to the placebo group having a higher number of patients that would ultimately require, quote, rescue dosing or later administration of acetaminophen at six hours. Well, even with this modest efficacy on temperature, does giving acetaminophen seem to help with hospital outcomes? So, there are are a number of articles that suggest it could. Here's one. Back in early 2015, one group published the, quote, paracetamol therapy and outcome of critically ill patients, a multicenter retrospective observational study. The name at least tells you what they were trying to accomplish. Not surprisingly, this was a large study, and it told over 15,000 folks in the ICU. Prior meta-analysis has suggested that acetaminophen was not actually associated with a reduction in hospital mortality for critically ill patients. So they designed this observational study to see if it was worth creating an RCT to reevaluate this question. Their hypothesis was that acetaminophen probably doesn't help critically ill patients generally, but that in patients with infection specifically, administration of acetaminophen might be associated with changes in the risk of death. They found that there was an overall unadjusted reduction from 20% to 10% for in-hospital mortality and a reduction from 15% to 5% mortality in ICU patients. So those are pretty shocking numbers. Mm -hmm. But remember, this is not an RCT, so you got to take that with a grain of salt. Like most observational studies, their table one suggested that the two groups were very different. So over-extrapolate this at your own peril. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Still with multivariate logistic regression analysis, they found that receiving acetaminophen significantly reduced in-hospital mortality with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.6. When discounting surgical patients... Who might more often be receiving acetaminophen as an analgesic rather than an antipyretic. Medical patients with fevers and infection no longer showed this increased survival. It did delay death, though. Wait, so all those fevers I got rid of as an overnight intern by handing out acetaminophen like it was candy didn't actually help, though? I thought euthermia was a really important thing in patients with infection. Yeah, so basically this study we just talked about said, no, the acetaminophen probably didn't do much. Oh, shut down. <laughs> but what about septic shock? I thought that now we have this whole focus on euthermia. Uh, yeah, and so this has been studied. There is a small RCT published in 2012 called Fever Control Using External Cooling in Septic Shock, a randomized controlled trial. And it looked at this question in about 200 patients, though please note that they did not focus on their use of acetaminophen. They found that cooling decreased vasopressor requirements and improved early mortality rates at 14 days. But it again didn't change mortality rates by the time of discharge, showing this effect of delaying death but not actually preventing it. So with that study and other trials, there was enough interesting background data circulating to set up a proper randomized control trial to answer this question, if there was any mortality or any other benefit to using acetaminophen in the ICU. Enter the cleverly named heat trial, whose title in no way spells the word heat. Yeah, so disappointing. The <laughs> trial titled Acetaminophen for Fever in Critically Ill Patients with Suspected Infection, Where is the Heat, was a prospective, blinded, randomized controlled trial geared at looking at the highest risk patients in the hospital. ICU patients. To see if there was an improvement in ICU-free days with acetaminophen. And it probably was one of the larger acetaminophen trials to date, coming in at exactly 700 patients in total. Total. The people in the interventional group got one gram of IV acetaminophen every six hours. 
And what they found was that there were no changes in their primary outcome between the two groups, number of ICU-free days at day 28. And they also didn't see a change in probability of survival at 90 days between using acetaminophen and placebo. But what they did see was a short-lived improvement in survival that quickly faded by day 30. The same thing that happened in that observational trial. Acetaminophen delayed death, but didn't ultimately prevent it. So they looked a little bit further in the subgroup analysis. What they found was that patients who ultimately survived were more likely to get out of the ICU sooner if they got acetaminophen. But among patients who ultimately passed away, they lived longer, just not in the ICU. Averaging those two outcomes together, it ended up looking like patients who received acetaminophen had the same number of ICU days as those in the placebo arm. So ultimately, and not at all surprisingly, the authors note, my favorite statement, further investigation is probably warranted. When is it not? (laughs) One thing to remember with these trials is that we're talking about mortality. But based on what we know about sepsis, probably we should expect that fever and fever control aren't going to affect that. Yeah, what you're getting at here is that fevers are really more a marker of infection, not mortality. Fever control may signal instead how attentive the medical team is to their patient or other things. So to bring this all back, this data does call into question whether or not we should be giving antipyretics at all. But it does highlight at least what has become a common theme in our discussions as well, that focusing on numbers doesn't always translate to better patient care. So what do you do, Steve? Well, Janine, I still give it. I think that part of me thinks that it's a relatively low-risk medication in this context of fever reduction. So if it's going to make him feel better, why not help a patient out? After all, more than one patient has yelled at me going, hey, give me some Tylenol. If I wasn't here, I'd just buy the stuff myself. Totally. And I agree. As long as I stay below the recommended daily dose of 3 grams, I give acetaminophen to my patients just to help them feel better. Probably the next question then is, do we really need to be giving acetaminophen? As opposed to what? Ice cubes? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I was thinking maybe like a medication, Janine. Something like NSAIDs that we mentioned in the teaser. Okay, good point. All right. So there is a significant body of literature in the pediatrics data that suggests that, in fact, NSAIDs might be superior to acetaminophen when it comes to fever reduction. And even more data suggests that maybe alternating between the two is superior to one alone. I guess in terms of applicability to adult medicine, though, it comes down to whether or not you think that kids are just little big people. Or in your case, Steve, maybe just an overgrown little person. Oh, thanks. I opened myself up for that. <laughs> I've been waiting to say that one. <laughs> but after all, we're going to hopefully avoid insulting the entire field of pediatrics, but recognizing that pediatric disease and adult disease isn't the same for many reasons. I, I don't know that you can always just clearly extrapolate from one group to the next. Let's stick to what we do know. One of those things is how NSAIDs actually work. So to reorient you guys here, we are now leaving the realm of evidence-based medicine, and we're going to be talking about NSAIDs, acetaminophen, COX, and fever pathways. Science. Uh, Yeah, science. (laughs) The purpose of this is to highlight both how we think acetaminophen might work and how that plays a role in using it. So for those of you not interested in this pathophys, feel free to skip ahead to the end. So you're still here. So to recap, NSAIDs act on inhibition of an enzyme called cyclooxygenase, or COX. As a brief refresher for you and us, COX comes in two known isoforms, COX-1 and COX-2. And it allows for conversion of arachidonic acid to prostanoids like prostaglandin or thromboxane. Those prostanoids, most specifically prostaglandin E, have been known to have a role in generating fevers by their action on the hypothalamus. We found early experiments showing that direct injection of prostaglandin E into the hypothalamus would generate fevers. Wow, that sounds pretty brutal. It was one of those cat experiments. You know how you read about those in textbooks? Tell me about those cat studies. Do you remember? I feel like my textbook had these like cats cut in half, like cats on a treadmill. (laughs) It's a long time ago. (laughs) 
<laughs> all brutal, what all kind of, terrible. What kind of textbook did I you read? I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, they further confirmed this physiology of fevers with an experiment that showed that COX-2, not COX-1, is responsible for making prostaglandin in the hypothalamus. They did this by working with Cox knockout mice. Not to be confused with Mike Tyson punch-out mice. Just a little <laughs> 80s joker there. I'm cringing. <laughs> so the experiments with knockout mice suggested that pyrogens, or fever producers, didn't generate fevers in Cox 2 knockout mice, meaning that Cox 2 was probably necessary for a fever to happen. But that said, we don't want to oversimplify things by pretending all fevers are due to prostaglandin E. There's a figurative bowl of alphabet soup. You know, things like substance P or interleukins. That also play a huge role in fever generation and the complex system of thermoregulation, a lot of which is still debated and discussed. But this knowledge is hard to ignore, especially since NSAID's suppression of prostaglandin E production probably plays a role in their ability to suppress fevers. So what about acetaminophen? Is that how it works too? So this has been a source of debate for some time. And the truth is that we're not really sure, but as early as the 1970s, we've been reasonably certain that acetaminophen probably acts on the brain. And not anywhere else. Yeah, mainly there. Sometimes it's easier to use contrast to understand a topic better. So to help you understand why we think that about acetaminophen working in the brain, let's look at the clinical differences in when we use NSAIDs versus acetaminophen. In summary, NSAIDs can treat fever. They inhibit COX function and reduce prostaglandins as a result, so the hypothalamus doesn't trigger a fever. And clearly, NSAIDs affect both the CNS and the body in general, since they act as anti-inflammatories in the periphery, too. Let's contrast that with acetaminophen. Similar to NSAIDs, it seems to have good central nervous system effects, namely as a pain and fever reliever. But conversely, we don't use it for its anti-inflammatory effects, suggesting that it's not as active in the periphery. So the theory is that acetaminophen probably targets something in the brain, and only the brain. And that something is probably COX-2, at least based on the knockout mice data we alluded to earlier. That's pretty much what they've thought since the 70s. Okay, so final takeaway? The thought is that both NSAIDs and acetaminophen act on central COX-2, explaining why they can help control fever. So then, how does acetaminophen get comparable levels of antipyretic effects? Is it really more active in the brain? <laughs> so where are we now? It's still complicated, but nowadays people think that acetaminophen probably works on some other pathway. Or if it does act on COX, it acts on its lesser-known peroxidase step. Because mm, COX actually has two steps. One is its namesake, the COX step, and the other is peroxidase. We'll try not to get bogged down in the details of all this, but basically, some people think that acetaminophen might work on that second peroxidase step. And so as its name implies, the second step, peroxidase, interacts with peroxide. But if you have a bunch of peroxide around, acetaminophen isn't able to stop all of it from interacting with COX. That limits how effective acetaminophen is in tissues with lots of peroxide. And this might explain why it's less active in some tissues than others. Peroxide levels are probably higher in areas of active inflammation. You may remember that white blood cells can make free radicals. And a byproduct of this, quote, superoxide reaction is peroxide. So this might explain why we observe that acetaminophen can act as a fever reducer in the hypothalamus, but not as an anti-inflammatory in the periphery where peroxide levels are high. But again, a lot of this just explains what we think we already know, that acetaminophen isn't a great anti-inflammatory. Other hypotheses also exist, suggesting acetaminophen and NSAIDs may both influence other fever pathways independent of COX and prostaglandin. Fun, kind of real-world fact. 
if you are ever traveling in Brazil and you feel some pain and see some yellow things scurry away, you probably just got stung by a Brazilian yellow scorpion and you're going to get a fever. Where are you going with this, Trust Steve? me, this fever is not at all related to prostaglandin. And wouldn't you know, acetaminophen still works as an antipyretic. Apologies to any Brazilian listeners, but I'm not sure that remotely constitutes a real world fact. I'm just trying to make things more applicable again. Okay, it's sort of cool, but let's do that by actually recapping things. So to start, number one, acetaminophen may modestly decrease average fevers. That effect may be more apparent in the short term with faster and more robust effervescence, even if it doesn't necessarily play out over a 24-hour average. And number two, there probably isn't good data to suggest that acetaminophen improves mortality. But that doesn't mean that it's not a worthwhile drug for treatment of symptoms. That's up to you to decide for yourself. Mm -hmm. Just like point number three, maybe there's data to support the use of NSAIDs over acetaminophen. Unless you're talking about point Point number four, with the Brazilian yellow scorpion, where you have to use acetaminophen. Because sometimes you don't have to know why something works. Real world experience is good enough. So we know that we went kind of quickly through the data. And arguably not as in-depth as some might like. So as always, we want to encourage you to check out the data too. Take a look at the links below the podcast on the Clinical Correlations website so you can take the time to judge the data for yourself and sound smart on rounds. Super smart. Super smart. <laughs> After all, this is a podcast talking about those gaps in our knowledge. So if you really want to feel confident on the data, take the time to pick it apart yourself. And if there are any other topics you'd like to hear discussed, please let us know. I'm Steve Liu. And I'm Janine Knudsen. And remember, mind the gap. Thanks for listening. Disclaimer, opinions in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Please don't use this podcast for medical advice, but instead consult with your healthcare provider.